everybody. This is Dr. William Clark, your host of the Dr. William Clark podcast. Glad to be with you. In the midst of this coronavirus, we have been talking about, at least before corona, uh, fundraising and all that good stuff. And then we've kind of diverted uh, to kind of address the issue. And I wanted to continue to do both of those things. And with our guest right. today, uh, I wanted to talk about fundraising in the midst of Corona and what we can do to survive as nonprofits. So with that being said, I have on the line Beverly Burgess, the creator of Grant Writers of America. Beverly, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm surviving. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> when people we're ask we're me, surviving here. <laughs> when people ask me how I'm doing, I just simply say I'm trying not to get sick. <laughs> that's it. That's it. That's all. Well, and trying to stay healthy. Yep, that's for sure. So Beverly, let's jump into the podcast. But before we do that, just tell us a little bit about yourself and what people should know about you. Well, I worked for the state of Florida for 12 years. I worked for the Department of Labor, Employment and Training, Bureau of Apprenticeship. We design um, grant programs with NASA, Lockheed, Martin Marietta, um, Steel Workers of America, I'm Workers of America. And what we did was we took kids that had dropped out of school and the companies were paid $2,500 per month per student over a one year, 18 month or two year period. Once those, once those kids developed a trade, they went on to either stay with NASA Lockheed or Mark Marietta and the other companies I mentioned, or they went into another field of their expertise. We even had contracts with the city and the county. I also spent 33, year, 33 years with HUD housing and I worked on the private Section 8 side of HUD housing, where I would go get money for my owners to develop affordable housing. And that's uh, 45 years is what I've been doing. All right. Well, thank you for that brief introduction. I'm sure there's way more to the story, but given uh, the time we have, I, I want to tackle as much as I can. Um, okay. So let me let me start with what you did said in your introduction, tell us a little bit about your current business. What are you doing now these days? Well, I run the group on Facebook, Grant Writers of America, where we collectively started a group to bring grant writers from all around the world and the country. And it gave them a voice and a platform to let people know what was out there and what was going on. In my current business, I have a nonprofit called Pine Hills, of, um, Pine Hills Community Business Incubator where we help veterans who are the most underserved group start their businesses, build capacity, get funding. Uh, we offer classes and we pretty much are one of the most linked organizations to the Pine Hills community up here in Orlando. And we, okay. that's what we've been doing with the veterans. I mean, the veterans haven't been getting any funding, any help, any assistance. So we we use we go to the veterans because that's a, a that to me is an underserved, targeted audience. They right. they don't get any help whatsoever. So, given uh, the state of what's happening uh, around the world, um, you know, a lot of nonprofits are trying to figure out how they can survive and th and right. literally thrive uh, in spite of what's going on. I want to talk about trends for a minute. And I wrote down a number of trends I want to talk about uh, with you. Uh, given the bulk of your experience in housing, let's start with housing. Okay. What are the what are the trends you're seeing as it relates to housing programs, housing funding, housing projects that nonprofits are taking advantage of or nonprofits should be taking advantage of these days? What I'm seeing in housing right now, I'm working on two very large HUD projects right now, is that 
there's just not enough affordable housing whatsoever. Uh, I think we missed the mark on that. And so a lot of churches and a lot of developers are scrambling to do more affordable housing. Of course, you know, when you start construction, you're 18 to 22 months out just to get it built and get the doors open. And then we roll on to the next phase. So what's happening with me, myself, I'm getting a lot of phone calls asking me to consult on projects here in Florida um, on the housing end of it. And there's just not enough of us to go around. Uh, there is a lot of money on the table. Um, you know, they're giving out, uh, Dr. Carson is giving out lines of credit from HUD. But it's to me, it's just not enough and it's too little too late. We've got people sleeping on the sidewalks at Disney's gates. And pretty soon they've already said, we're gonna be looking like, I think it's San Francisco or or one of them up there in California where there's a lot, over 100,000 people sleeping on the sidewalks. And being the tourist capital of the world, I don't know how we missed that mark. This is something that we should have, you know, handled 20 years ago. But now with the COVID-19, the trend is there, there's a demand, a huge demand in the state of Florida for affordable housing. And it's too little too late, but we can't do anything but just deal with it right now. So would you say that that demand is um, large in other states as well around the U.S.? Or are you, you think it's a hotbed in Florida? It's a hotbed in Florida, but also we I've, I've been talking to grant writers in New York. It's seeing a, a definitely a big demand for housing. They definitely need it in California. I mean, in every area of California is what I'm finding out. And there is a demand also in Dallas, Texas, because Dallas has so many rural areas. So those four states, New Florida, Dallas, New York, and California have a big demand for housing but it's more of a hotbed because people want to come to Florida where it's nice and sunny. In my opinion, uh, Dr. Clark, we only have 11 months of hot weather. I mean, we, we've gone to the beach when it's been below zero in New York, we've gone to the beach in our shorts and, you know, more and more people are moving here. And um, they estimated yesterday that over 1200 people per day are moving into the great state of Florida. So for organizations or nonprofits who say, Beverly, that's great. Um, but we need some practical steps on how to get into this business. What are some entry level ways nonprofits can jump into the housing business, the affordable housing business? Well, the first thing they have to do, which I find with a lot of nonprofits, they don't have an EIN number. They don't have a DUNS number. And what people have to understand, these are two separate entities. Your EIN number just identifies you as a business but your DUNS number allows you to do business with the federal government. A lot of nonprofits also need to take the time, what I'm discovering, Dr. Clark, and register in the SAM system. They do not register in the SAM system. They just think that it's just gonna be something that, okay, I, I can get a DUNS number and I can do this. No, you must be in the SAM system because those two systems talk to each other. Also, they need to have the board of directors put together. They need to have a minimum of seven to nine people on that board. And you need to have people on that board that's gonna bring something to the table. And, and um, also what we're discovering here, they don't have a budget put together. They don't, they don't even use the college kids, like here we use college kids because it's free to us, okay? College kids have access to a lot of information so 
use the college kids because they have access to social media. They can help you with platforms and getting your messaging out. And, you know, those are some of the steps. And then they also need to go and get on, you know, consult with someone like myself or a couple other people I know in housing. You need to have a HUD housing number. That nine digit number identifies you as someone that's going into the housing industry. Um, you know what you're doing. You're asking the right questions and having a good, when, you, when I say developer, having someone on your team that understands real estate, that knows how to develop it. What is it gonna cost you per, um, you know, per square, you know, square footage of, the, of a one bedroom and a two bedroom? And how many units are you gonna offer? they won't ask the questions that need to be asked and this is where they're running into a problem so if they ask those simple construction questions and have that ein and dunn's number they'll get ahead a lot faster so let me ask you a, a, another clarifying question i think that's all great information for nonprofits, small businesses people looking to get into the business as well uh what's your where, where do you fall uh what side do you fall on when people want to have the conversation about should we do this housing project or any business as a nonprofit or for-profit? Uh, what, what are your thoughts about that? I tell, I tell them to look at your demographics. Look, look at the people you're serving in your community. Um, I find that a lot of for-profits have just as much opportunity to apply for grants as nonprofits. It depends on how you want to set up your structure. But if you look at your community and the people in your community, that will tell you how to set that up. And what I'm finding here in Orlando, a lot of people are moving away from nonprofit, Dr. Clark, and going more into the for-profit industry because they have more say about that business. That that is they have a lot more say. That is very true. I mean, for people who are watching this podcast and, and aren't sure what she's talking about, I mean, as a nonprofit. You, you you obviously have your tax breaks, uh, but the key difference is the profits at the end of the fiscal year go back to the program or the nonprofit organization and you're under the control of a board of directors versus as a for-profit entity. Uh, you are self-sufficient. It's all about you, if you will, and you got to pay taxes. It's a big difference. Um, so, so here's the thing. Let's kind of stay in that vein for nonprofits that are pre-existing, fully mature, receiving grants and other contracts that want to get into this business. Do you advise them to create subsidiaries that are wholly owned by the nonprofit that are in a, that are for profits? Do you encourage them to create spinoff organizations that are for profits but has a board of directors that represent the interests of the nonprofit? Do you encourage them to have a controlling stake, a percentage of for profit entities? I mean, what do you advise your clients to do when they are fully mature nonprofits? When when they're a nonprofit, and I've seen this, I advise my my clients to have a for profit entity because you have more control and you have more say. And, you know, a lot of them have looked at, you know, having a nonprofit and then having a for-profit entity, like Coca-Cola is a for-profit company, but they have the Coca-Cola Foundation, which is an arm of Coca-Cola. And to me, in my opinion, when I've advised my clients and they've talked to their accountant, advisably, that works better for them because it shows what the profit margin the company is bringing in, but it also shows the company as a whole is giving back to the community because the community is using the product and buying the profit product. Now, 
when a for you know nonprofits have some nonprofits have come to me and say I don't want to stake in it or I don't want to do a for profit. I say okay, well, if you want to just keep it nonprofit, that's totally up to you. But also take each quarter to look at how your community is growing and everything. So in my opinion, my expertise, when I've had to deal with nonprofits that are developing that for-profit entity, I've, I've had a success rate of 95%. And they've told me, they said, having a for-profit company and having the foundation as an arm or the nonprofit as an arm of the company has worked better for them. Because then they take my advice, Dr. Clark, and they go out into the community and they talk to an accountant, they talk to the banker, and you know, and they even get on the phone and they talk to the IRS. And the IRS tells them how to set that up. Here's your for-profit arm, here's your nonprofit arm, and this is how this needs to work. And so far, we haven't had any complaints about it. So you're saying if one has a choice, starting an, a, a new entity, or series of them, you're suggesting they start a for-profit entity and have a nonprofit as a subsidiary? Yes, and that's, and they said that works better for them. Because now, just go like, ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, 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 go ahead. Well, like Coca-Cola, which, which, which they use as an example. They saw Coca-Cola, it has distributors all around the world. They make money every day. But that Coca-Cola Foundation, when you look at the 2018 and now they're putting out the 2019 Coca-Cola Foundation report, it shows Coca-Cola giving back to Italy, Spain, Germany, um, Florida, uh, different cities and um, counties in the United States. Coca-Cola gives back to everyone. And it outlines in that 58-page report why they gave somebody $5.5 million or half a million dollars. And what that company, what that nonprofit does for the community. And the, the one thing that arm of that nonprofit does, they are building capacity. Uh, Coca-Cola is giving back to the community. They're, they're investing their money in the community because the community is buying their product. Now, and just to make sure we are clear, if you are a 20, 30, 40-year-old nonprofit and they want to jump into any business, housing, et cetera, you're saying that they should create a, a wholly owned, operated subsidiary for profit under the nonprofit, given the maturity they, they, of the organization. And I advise them all the time to call the business number of the internal revenue. The internal revenue has a business division and they show them how to set that up because they are the experts. They ask me my opinion, I give it to them. And they said, because with a for profit entity, they have more say. A nonprofit, you're going to be limited to what you say, do, and what you can vote on and how much money comes in and how much money goes out. But if you have a for-profit entity, you have a lot more control. You have a lot more say. Um, you can't, you, you know, people just can't kick you out because that's your baby. And that's what people are beginning to find out. They're catching on to it. And they're asking well, why don't people tell us about this? I say, because you probably never asked the question, but this is why I direct them to the business division of the internal revenue and they go over everything with them. Yeah. So, so for those who are watching this podcast, I mean, obviously this is a very short conversation about uh, a complex topic. Um, obviously Beverly is doing her best to condense it uh, over my 
left shoulder, you see a green book sustainable. I talk about the concepts around uh, revenue generation for nonprofits. I encourage those who are new uh, to, to this, to this business, do your research, talk to a professional, uh, get some advisors on the board or at least around you who can advise you. Uh, and maybe Beverly and I can talk more deeply about this in a future podcast. But I want to switch gears for, for the next few minutes that we have together, Beverly. And I want to talk about COVID-19. I want to talk about coronavirus. Uh, this thing continues to sweep the world in unimaginable ways. And organizations, companies are, are responding uh, to it by way of shutting down. Jobs are, are going away. Uh, we're talking about how this changes programs and nonprofits forever. Uh, for nonprofits who are at a mature status, and maturity can be loosely defined as, you know, being able to sustain. You have bills, you have staff, etc. For nonprofits that are mature, what can you say to them that can encourage them uh, during this awkward, weird change of a season in life and in, in world history? And what can you advise them on how to financially survive in this strange moment? What we're finding um, right now is a lot of grants. Like we do a lot of corporate grants and one of those corporate grants is Coca-Cola. They have an endless amount of money that they are wanting to give away. I encourage people to apply for more corporate grants because when they, like one of the board members said, when we make our money, we are obligated to put back into the community because if we don't, we get taxed 55%. Um, look at your corporate companies. Look at the products you use in your home. Call the 1-800 number and ask questions. Uh, one of my students happened to do that. She, she didn't think Family Dollar gave back to the community. Well, she called and found out differently. Family Dollar, Hormel Food Company, they all have arms of the company that give back to the community because remember their product is being sold in your community when you go after corporate money they usually can make a decision within 30 to 90 days and considering the COVID-19 a lot of these companies when they're giving out money now they're making those decisions within 30 to 45 days if they're going to fund you it never hurts to ask. It never hurts to submit your application and this is a way financially you keep your nonprofit engaged in the community you keep yourself funded you keep money coming through the door while you're waiting on state federal city and county grants uh, a lot of nonprofits limit themselves so if you go after corporate money and you've got part-time college kids helping you you can have someone on your team or two people on your team to help you research and go after additional monies don't limit yourself because when you submit for federal grants you're going to be waiting a minute I mean, that's just the, the God's honest truth. But if you submit for other grants and you talk to people in your community, I have found out Dr. Clark going into my community, asking some of the mom and pop stores to financially get behind me. They have been willing to cut checks on the spot because we're in the community together. And if you don't ask, you don't receive. Like one of the, one of the um, local mom and pops is like two minutes up the street from me. He said, I've always known about Pine Hills Community Business Incubator. I was just waiting for you to come in here and ask for a donation. I was like, wow. And he's in the process right now of writing our organization a check 
for $5,000, okay? This is just somebody locally in the community. Hardy's has been in my community for 50 years. I know the owner personally. She is giving money to us, getting ready to write us a check because of what we do in the community for veterans and she's a big veteran supporter. Look at the, the, the people around you with this COVID-19. This is sweeping the world, not just where I live, it's all over the world right now. We're in for a long road. And you, if you, what you have to do now, Dr. Clark, like you said in one of your videos, think outside the box. You gotta go outside your box. You can't stay in your comfort zone, zone anymore because COVID-19 is not gonna let you do that. And that's where we've been successful in raising money for our nonprofit. So true. Just to put a button on this podcast, I think this is a this is a, this is a perfect way to close out. Uh, I recently released a podcast, and I talked about celebrate grants of all sizes. And uh, I actually wrote that in my book, Grant Writing One Hundred and One, pre Corona. Uh, and I think so many times, Beverly people, nonprofits, if you will, can be dismissive or they don't, they're not good stewards of the small grants. And what I teach in my workshops and my classes is, as you said, pre-corona, during corona, post-corona, <laughs> uh, the, some of the best checks are the smallest ones, particularly for mature organizations. And, and this is a tidbit for those watching. It's one of the best ones because of what Beverly said. They write those checks on the spot. Sometimes those checks come, and most times those checks come in full. They come immediately. Uh, many times you can put apply them to generic programs or generic operating uh, funds, and that is the difference between paying your rent during Corona versus not paying your rent. That is the difference between keeping uh, that extra staff person on staff that really is vital to what you do versus not or laying them off. Uh, so those small checks, big or big or small, yeah, we got to learn to celebrate and honor them. And then I do want to call out, I think that you gave a really cool and relevant strategy about going to corporate foundations. And she's talked about businesses that are opening open during this time. I mean, these are just countrywide companies that are open right now. Target, Walmart, y'all cannot sleep on Dollar Tree. Dollar Tree, first of all, Dollar Tree uh, is a spot. You can find any and everything literally for a dollar. Uh, and they make crazy money, an amazing store, amazing company. They're open during this time. And that's probably where everybody's getting a toilet tissue from because it's gone in Target. You got BJ's, you got Sam's Club, you got churches. Now right. churches, I know somebody got arrested in your state not too long ago and and. Yeah, that's, this is not for that podcast, but I will say churches uh, are virtually open. That means that they are still preaching and teaching months, Sundays and Wednesdays, still collecting offerings. And let me go here, supermarkets, and you mentioned food organizations, McDonald's, Wendy's, Burger King. These corporations are open. Many of them are privately owned and operated, uh, except for the big boys. And you can still go to these organizations. And one of the things I said in the recent podcast to Beverly, and we'll close with this, that these organizations are looking for outlets in the community so that when during this time and then after this time, they can say that they have a footprint in partnership with your nonprofit. Beverly, I know our time is short. Thank you for doing this. Uh, hopefully we can do it again. This is the Dr. William Clark podcast. We'll see you in the next episode. See you guys. Have you ever wondered how large nonprofits consistently generate millions of dollars? Have you ever wondered how to write the perfect grant or how to successfully manage a grant or even how to find money beyond grants? Hi, my name is Dr. William Clark, 
and I'm the creator and instructor of what you should know before applying for grants. This masterclass has over 28 modules of training, and it comes with tools, tips, and tricks on how to generate significant money for your nonprofit. Some students have been fortunate enough to build six-figure programs, and others have been fortunate enough to triple their fundraising results because of this masterclass. Whatever your fundraising goals are, this masterclass can help you achieve them. To register your seat, simply go to mysixfigurefunding.com. That's mysixfigurefunding.com, and you'll be taken immediately into our student portal where you can access all of our trainings. You can take the trainings on demand, at your own pace, and at any time. You even can interact with other students and me all online from the comfort of your home or your office. If you want to secure your seat today for this masterclass, what you should know before applying for grants, simply go to mysixfigurefunding.com. Again, that's mysixfigurefunding.com, and I'm looking forward to learning with you and growing with you as you achieve your fundraising goals for your nonprofit.